Hello, and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we speak to the producers of interesting content and see if we can learn a little bit more about their background. Joining us today is Kate Efron, who is an EdD candidate in Humane Studies for Antioch University, and is currently working as a language tutor for Japanese teachers uh, for Cambridge University Press. Very nice to make your acquaintance, Kate. Yeah, thanks, Chris. You too. I'm happy to be here. So this interview kind of uh, starts another new mini-series, I like my mini-series, uh, within our interviews, uh, following up on an interview that we did with Dr. Aaron Han uh, from Kyushu University on his use of critical discourse analysis to uncover the ideologies of internationalization in lesson plans. And the paper we're going to be speaking about today is representations of multiculturalism in Japanese elementary EFL textbook. So again, a slightly different context, but still uh, using the critical analysis frame. So to start with, can you give us a little bit of background to this study, what motivated it and, and, and why you chose this method of analysis? To be honest, when I was considering starting this study, I was a master's student and I had never taken any kind of course in methodology research or inquiry or anything. So I was just reading lots of articles about Japanese education per my interest because I was working in public schools at the time. And I just thought these textbooks that we're using to teach young students. So I work primarily with um, grades three, four, five, and six in elementary schools in Japan. These textbooks, they were not working to teach English, but they also had a lot of what I felt were stereotypes or cultural stigmas that really weren't helping students to become global thinkers or global citizens, which is one of MEXT's goals. So that's why I thought that critical discourse analysis, just what I had read about it through other people's articles, because that wasn't any kind of specialization of mine. But I just thought this kind of framework really lets you look at the socio-political and socio-historic impetus behind how these textbooks come to be and why they're in our classrooms. So that's why I wanted to use that framework to kind of uncover some of the hidden ideologies that I felt that I, I could sense were in the books. Well, this goes back to, uh, arguably goes back to the 2003 uh, Japanese with English Abilities proposal, uh, and also the suggestion that we should be building, this is something that's come up on a podcast before, something called Global Jinzai, which is a global human mm -hmm. resources, uh, or globalized people. Thinker, yeah. Globalized thinkers, yes. Um, and so in your paper, which which types of books did you look at? So I surveyed actually the four textbooks that I was teaching, <laughs> because those were the ones I was familiar with. Um, and at, actually, even now, um, the textbooks for grades three and four in Kyoto, a series called Let's Try. So let's try one and let's try two, um, which corresponds with grades three and four. And at the time, the textbooks that we were using for grades five and six were We Can One and We Can Two. And right after this paper was published, actually that same month, corresponding with the start of the school year, the textbooks for grades five and six changed. They were switched to the New Horizon series, which was uh, brand new for fifth and sixth grade, I guess. 
New Horizon, is that still produced by Mext or is that being produced through a private company? That is such a good question. I think Tokyo Shoseki is the <laughs> publisher, but I know that you know, the textbooks that are used and distributed nationwide in Japan, they are all approved by Mext. Uh, the only reason I ask is because, uh, as I've mentioned with you in uh, email correspondence, I was actually part of the program between 2008 and 2011 to try and get elementary school students, uh, sorry, elementary school teachers uh, mm -hmm. more familiar with English language teaching because this was a big change in their curriculum. The directions that we received were directly from Mext, but when you get mm -hmm. private uh, publishers involved, it becomes a little bit more difficult and you know, they, they produce their own teachers' manuals and perhaps even evaluation materials as well. The literature review for your paper begins with an area of language analysis that I'm, I'm fairly well, fairly well versed in. I'm not familiar with uh, critical discourse analysis, but you begin with talking about the world English's model and, uh, you know, the three circles model produced by Katru and which talks about the inner circle being the countries that traditionally donated the language to different parts of the world, the outer circle, which were the former colonies and the expanding circle, which is basically everyone else. So in your look at this model, perhaps without as much background in world Englishes, how relevant did you feel it was to the analysis of producing globalized people in Japan? That's such a good question. <laughs> You know, I think that the thing that stands out to me about that model is that it's very useful to consider the context that you're teaching in. So, so many of the, in the, in the analysis that I did, so many of the, the speakers in the videos, the singers um, in the songs that we use, it's predominantly American English and predominantly American accents. And so when I was thinking about the three circle model, I was just thinking so much of what schools and curriculum designers focus on seems to come from the inner circle countries, places where people are likely to be native English speakers. And I wonder how well that that focus can really work in a different context. So in an expanding circle country like Japan, can we really expect, or do we even really want students to be able to speak the same language, uh, speak the same kind of English, or even focus on the same type of learning as a Japanese student versus an American student? And what conclusion did you come to? <laughs> I'm not sure I've come to one yet, to be honest. Um, but I, I do think that the context that you're teaching in is really important. So when I work in the classroom, I don't expect and I can't expect and I'm not even interested really in thinking about what American students at the same age can do language wise. I'm really interested in working within the Japanese context to help students express themselves what they want to authentically say and authentically share with others. And the conversation styles are different between Americans talking to Americans and Japanese people talking to Japanese people. Obviously the, there's a cultural difference, there's a topic interest. And I want my students 
to be able to talk and share the things that they want to talk and share. One of the people you reference in your paper is uh, Dr. Ayo Matsuda and her investigation of, uh, I think, high school textbooks at the time, back in 2002. And one of the things that I mentioned, where we actually interviewed Dr. Matsuda, and I talked to her specifically about that paper because it was one of the papers that really got me interested in world Englishes. And mm -hmm. she said very much the same thing, that context uh, was important to consider yeah. the types of language. I mean, she actually, the two examples that she gave were her grandmother wanting to travel to Switzerland, or if she mm -hmm. was training an American spy. So she, she has grand goals. <laughs> so in your analysis of these textbooks, what was your conclusion? What, what did you find? So the, the main thing um, that really stood out to me, which I, I didn't anticipate this going into the study, but the language, the language focus in the textbooks is predominantly focused on Japanese culture. And I was just talking about how context is important, but these textbooks in particular and Mexico's um, policy reforms and their, their oh. press releases that I had surveyed for this textbooks, which I think were from 2000. 14, 2019, and then one in 2020 that I got to look at just before I submitted this paper for consideration. But um, these press releases from MEXT were focused on promoting multiculturalism for the production of global thinkers, including multiple languages. So I think, um, let me see exactly what they say. I think they say something like they want to produce um, speakers of multiple languages, including English. So even though context is important, what I found was that the books were really focused on producing language that students would use to talk about Japan and Japanese culture. I looked at cultural references across all four textbooks. And from the 164 cultural references that I found, the occurrence of Japanese cultural artifacts, practices, and people comes out to 42.1%, while the average per country of the remaining 27 countries that are included throughout the four textbooks is only 2.1%. So there is a significant focus on Japanese culture, um, Japanese mainstream culture, actually, because minority cultures in Japan and minority groups within Japan are not explicitly referenced at all in any of these textbooks. Let's, but let's take that as a frame of reference because, or, or let's take that as a frame of analysis, because you note, and also we've discussed previously about the idea of the tourist lens of multiculturalism or internationalism, globalism. Um, and the fact that the wider picture of the stakeholders within this situation. So you have uh, Max who's wanting to promote uh, multiple language uh, use, but also knowing that it's going to be mostly in a Japanese context. You have the teachers who don't have a wide background in language right. education because it's still in elementary school. So they mm -hmm. really are the Swiss army knives of Japanese education. I mean, I, I've got to yeah. elementary school right now and I, I know through 
a PTA work that they have to do a lot of extra work in all all kinds of areas so um, that they are doing their best and then they and got, they're amazing they are amazing and yeah. then you've got the students who are still young and don't have much experience of the world outside of perhaps what they've seen on tv or uh, in the movies and so frames of reference in the textbooks that relate to things that they might know i.e japanese modern culture might give them something to actually talk about and think about in a foreign language without having to know too much about other countries. I mean, what do you think about that as a, as a way of analyzing why that they would be the contents of the textbook? That's a really, really good question. So when I was thinking about the tourist lens, the thing that the thing I couldn't get away from was really that the there is a very cursory inclusion of multiple countries and languages in the books. That's one, that was one thing that I kept thinking about. And I thought that, I mean, the, sur the study I did revealed that a lot of these representations are <laughs> stereotypical in nature. Um, so for example, there's one, there's one character in the textbook who is um, from India, so she likes curry. And another, character who appears once who is from the Philippines and he wants to be a fruit shop owner. And so, you know, these, these stereotypes, um, while they might help anchor students, there's, I guess with the stereotypes, it helps paint a picture of other countries for students um, when these textbooks might be the first introduction to any, to, might be their first exposure to any other cultures but they're also so one-dimensional. And there's so much research on anti-bias frameworks and anti-bias thinking and anti-racist teaching that shows that these one-dimensional representations of people from other cultures or other countries besides one's own, these can promote dangerous thinking in the long run. Um, they can actually lead to dehumanization for example so well, i mean well, this we're we're talking about elementary school textbooks so that's just you know that's a bit down the line but the textbooks that we show are political in nature especially here because they're chosen by mext so there is perhaps some kind of political agenda i was um thinking going on here but the other thing about the taurus lens you know, the other thing about the tourist lens, the textbooks only show other cultures and places as locations for students to travel to, not as real places for students to make friends, to go to school, to potentially live in, not even as, not even as containing languages that students might want to speak. The cultures and the countries that are referenced are referenced so shallowly that students don't really, in my experience, students didn't really develop an interest or an authentic idea or perspective about these places. Mm -hmm. So actually I thought these textbooks are not only limiting, they don't only, the textbooks don't only limit students' thoughts about other people, but they also limit students' thoughts about themselves and what they can actually do in the world. And I thought both of these stem from the Taurus lens and they're both detrimental 
to the not only to the production of global citizens, but just as human beings. Well, let's let's do a bit of blue sky thinking then. If we were going to recreate, reimagine these textbooks, what kinds of activities do you think? Because these these text textbooks are predominantly designed around giving students activities to do, and also giving teachers some thing to lead. And so, <laughs> because the, mostly most of these classes are kind of teacher fronted. Uh, everyone has, they do mm -hmm. something and then, like I said, I mean, I, I have two young children of my own, so I've, I've observed the classes and they, they, they do something with the a teacher, they, they talk to their, their partner, and then maybe two or three students put their hands up and, and give a, a little bit of feedback. But they're mm -hmm. mostly teacher fronted and their activities and the things that they can do as an entire class or as a short pair activity. So perhaps what kinds of things would you would you recommend? I mean, probably this would have to be on the teacher fronted side, but uh, in order to make it a little bit deeper, less less shallow, as you say. Yeah, you are you're exactly right um, with your description of the Japanese elementary school classrooms. So the first thing would be that they're very teacher centered, and in a lot of cases, as we discussed, the elementary school teachers in Japan have not been trained to teach English. So most of the time, in my experience, the teachers are speaking in Japanese only to students. So students' only input comes from the textbooks and the videos that accompany the textbooks. So I think the first thing I would say is that the classroom should be reoriented to be more student-focused and more student-centered. There is an elementary school that I work, that I work at now where we take this approach in grades three, four, five, and six. And what a student-centered classroom can look like is the teacher gives very simple instructions in English and students spend a majority of the time working together to ask each other questions and, and facilitate a conversation. One of the things about these textbooks is that they're scripted. There's, a, there's one sentence structure or grammar point for each unit that the students are supposed to basically memorize. And there's really no scaffolding for authentic communication. And I don't mean like speaking naturally in English, but I even just mean being able to respond to someone. So for example, one of the sentence structures um, that I just recently finished teaching was, what food do you like? So student A says, what food do you like? Student B learns to say, I like ice cream. Silence. Mm -hmm. That's it. So, you know, there's really no, there's no facilitation of actual communication. There's no response. Like, oh, me too. Or, oh, really? What, what flavor do you like? There's no scaffolding to build these kinds of conversations um, normally. But we've been doing it in, like I said, one of these elementary schools where I work that's kind of a more progressive school um, in terms of English teaching. And when you start to teach students communication skills beyond just the English sentences in the textbook, that's when things really take off and students can really begin to use the language for themselves. And that's, that's really my goal in teaching is to 
to help students be able to say what they want to say and express themselves as authentically as they can with the communication skills and the language skills that they have. So that would be one of the first things I would say. I also just um, published another paper that's about anti-bias frameworks in Japanese elementary school classrooms and how we can use anti-bias teaching in language classrooms to, to create more harmonious societies, more intercultural understanding, mutual respect between cultures. And just to create, I mean, if that's Mex's goal, more global thinkers. I keep coming back to this phrase because this is how it's um, used, but I think mutual respect between people is the baseline. Well, if anyone's interested in that paper, it is called Opportunities for Anti-Bias Frameworks in Japanese EFL Textbooks. And it was published in 2021 in the Babylonia Journal of Language uh, Education. That's an interesting choice for publication. How did you come into contact with this journal? Actually, they reached out to me. Uh-huh. They read this um, same paper about multicultural representation that you read. And they asked if I would be willing to submit to their upcoming issue on social justice. And actually, actually um, as I said, this, this paper that you and I are talking about today about multicultural representations in the textbooks, that is that was my first attempt at any real kind of academic writing and academic research for that matter. So when I submitted it initially to consideration, I had never done that before and I didn't know really what the guidelines were, what I should expect. And when the peer reviewers who were so amazing, when they got back to me, um, they suggested that I cut this very chunky section I had exploring how anti-bias frameworks could actually promote global citizenship and mutual respect between cultures, um, while also helping students describe and express their own cultural aspirations and their own cultural experiences. So I did, I cut that section because it really wasn't in keeping with the rest of the paper, but I had all this information about um, my ideas for what you could actually do in the classroom to promote multiculturalism. And so I sent it off to this journal that reached out to me, Babylonia. And they're a very interesting journal also because they publish multilingually. And that that is something that is very important to me, the, the decentering of English as the language. I was I was really impressed by their journal. So I was happy to submit there and I was happy that it worked out. It's a really interesting story because my most cited paper, the global model of English, was actually a section of my PhD thesis that my professor requested that I remove. And really? so it just became this separate <laughs> Word document that just floated around. And when I was thinking about something that I wanted to publish, then I went back to that, worked on it, and you know, it became something that I've been working on for the last for the last ten years. I'd just like to go back to what we talked about with the a, a new a new style of textbook or a new style of uh, language activity, mm-hmm. because oftentimes, like like I 
mentioned to you before, when I was working back in Oita and they were thinking of introducing more language education and Mex was pushing for this, and this was back in, I think, 2008, 2009. One of the things that I worked with the, lang- with the elementary school teachers was about the idea that teaching language is often about trying just to transfer the the mood mm. of one's first language into the second language. So just because you're saying it in English or Korean, Chinese, Spanish, whatever, it doesn't mean that you lose that impetus to when someone says, I like ice cream, you then would say, as you say, me too, or what flavor, or where do you buy it from, or how often do you eat it, or mm-hmm. that would be the most natural thing to do. How can we perhaps encourage, maybe our target should be the teachers, that we try and get the teachers to think about language teaching as just the the transfer of words, not the not a difference in attitude. That is that is such an important point. Um, and that's actually, I think, going to be the focus of my dissertation when I get there. Um, because as as I work with Cambridge University Press now, I'm working with a lot more teachers um, from all across Japan and this this issue of not, it's not just a lack of confidence, but actually a lack of of how to teach um, a language, it's ubiquitous. So I, I am really interested in finding a way to encourage teachers and to train teachers, um, meet them where they are and help them learn what they need to learn about language teaching. I, but I also think, um, because I think you were about to mention students as well, I think that task-based learning is a really good way to facilitate this also. If you have students working on a a meaningful task, on something real, um, as opposed to a textbook question that's thrown up on the board, they will be excited to learn and they will be able to see themselves in the process of language learning and speaking. So for example, one thing um, we did last year that was very successful was we did a, there, there is a textbook unit on recycling. This actually, this is not in the We Can textbooks um, or the Let's Try textbooks. This is in the New Horizon textbooks that just came out. Um, so we did it last year. We did the unit and the unit is, again, it's, it's focused on a main target sentence that it wants students to memorize. But we went a bit further than that and we researched our local area and got a sense of how much pollution we see at our beaches. Um, We're a seaside town. So we went out and we looked and we saw lots of plastic and trash and unrecyclable things that are all over the beaches. And when we went back to the classroom, we worked in groups to make recycling posters that were then displayed all over the town. Um, And the posters are in English and they say what students want to express about how they feel about this pollution in their town. So this was a project that students were engaged in personally, not just for the sake of textbook learning. They really did want to um, send a message to their community that, hey, you know, this <laughs> this pollution is all of our beaches. This The sea is our livelihood. Um, so it's something very personal and meaningful to students. So that's an example of how I think task-based learning can work 
also. Well, we're also touching a little bit here on language identity and multiple language identities, because mm. sometimes uh, maybe students might feel more free to express themselves in a foreign language than they would in their own language. I mean, in your experience, do you think that this was something that the students felt that they could express themselves perhaps more vociferously in English than they would in Japanese? I see that a lot with adult learners who I work with. Um, and lots of my Japanese friends have just verbatim said that, that they can, they feel they can express themselves more freely in English. With young learners, I think in my experience, what they enjoy is the creativity of being able to use both languages um, to find a new way to express themselves. And this is also something I'm interested in, this process of like translanguaging, which is when you use multiple languages at your disposal, the languages that you have to express yourself in your in your daily life. So I think that, yeah, I think that's very interesting. Yeah, translanguaging came up uh, when I was speaking with uh, Dr. Jennifer Jenkins and the idea that, you know, as you say, having multiple languages at, at your disposal perhaps gives you a greater vocabulary and also because culture is coded so much mm -hmm. in, uh, history into into language that by tapping into the different cultures and languages uh, uh, sorry the different cultures and histories of these languages you're actually giving yourself a greater language resource i'm i'm interested to think how that could be woven in i mean i know elementary school is the focus of the paper but i'm interested to think how that could be woven into you know middle school and high school as well at the at the english and perhaps even korean Chinese. Do you have any thoughts on that? I think a great way to, to do that, to infuse translanguaging practices into the classroom is through talking, is through having students talk with people beyond their classroom. So we've done a couple of Zoom sessions over the years with students um, in schools in Boston and New Zealand. Um, and these, these intercultural language exchanges give students the opportunity to use everything they have, their entire language repertoire, to make a connection with a real human being. And I think students always learn a lot through that experience. I also just heard about a very interesting project between a, univer a tech university in Hong Kong and an architectural, an environmental architectural school here in Kyoto. Um, again, these are university students, but what they did was they, these two schools um, had a project where the students worked together to solve or to come up with an idea to solve a local environmental problem here in Japan. And so students had to use English as the main bridge between them. Um, but they both, but both groups of students brought their own languages and cultural context to the conversation to be able to come up with new ideas to solve these problems. That's again, it, it kind of goes back to task-based learning, what we talked about before. It's something real, something meaningful to students. So, I think the more opportunities that you can create for students to speak with people um, in other cultures or even speakers of other languages, this will help promote language development and multicultural understanding. I agree. I mean, it, it's certainly working towards a common aim 
using English as a lingua franca, but not necessarily essentializing any of what we would term the inner circle English users. This is something that mm-hmm. came up with my interview with uh, Matsuda Sensei, that she had a she had a great line, I can't remember it verbatim, but in one of her papers when she was thinking about a world English's curriculum, that said, well, if an American English speaker, a Philippine English speaker, and an, an Italian English speaker meet in a hotel in Hong Kong for a business deal, why would the American English speaker have their English essentialized? Why wouldn't everyone have to use English essentially as a foreign language? And so, Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it did sound like the great setup to a joke, (laughs) but the the payoff uh, was a really important message that that English becomes the medium. It's not necessarily the essential tool in uh, achieving the task, uh, particularly as we move towards the idea of translanguaging. So uh, as a final question here, you are working towards uh, your EDD. It's a question that I sometimes ask about maintaining motivation, particularly in times of with the COVID-19 lockdown and, you know, not knowing exactly what the timetable is, what, uh, what, what the framework of your, of your study is. How have you maintained this very impressive research production during this time? Oh, thank you. Um... Thank you for the compliment. Actually, I have to give a lot of credit to my program. The the ED program at Antioch has done such a phenomenal job of helping students prioritize self-care. There are frequent meetings with faculty. There are frequent opportunities for students to engage online with each other um, in a Zoom format. So face-to-face, not just discussion forms um, on the learning page. And Having, I think having a community is the most, it's, it's the most, it's kind of the most rewarding part of this journey, of this process through my program for me, because we are able, we're all going through the same thing. We're able to share and bounce ideas off of each other. And again, there's a, there's an underpinning of the importance of self-care. So we actually have had like professionals in the field come and speak about the benefits of creating routines, the benefit of family time. Um, so that's been really helpful. During this process, has anything changed about the way that you are thinking about your research, about the research methodologies, um, you know, through speaking yeah. with other people in the program has, you know, could you share something uh, with that? Because I, this program is not intended only for you know, experts in the field. It's it's for people who are at various stages in their academic career. So could you share anything that has changed in your approaches through working with other people? Right, sure. So, and that's something I really love about Lost in Citations is that it, it brings together people who are all interested in education um, from all life ways and different parts of their lives. So I really appreciate that question. And I definitely, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not um, committed to a dissertation topic or even a specific inquiry yet, but my research interests have developed a lot. So something that I'm really interested in right now is transdisciplinarity, which is a, which is a philosophical paradigm to approaching the integration of different disciplines in your research. Something that I'm really interested in is finding a way to 
blur the lines of disciplines and find new creative ways of conceptualizing how we think about, I mean, my topic, my interest is language and culture. So approaching this field of study from a new perspective. I've also gotten very into critical pedagogy, <laughs> I'm, which is actually, I found out the basis for critical discourse analysis, which I wrote about as a master's student for this paper that we're talking about. But at, at the time I was a master's student, I didn't realize what an extensive body of research and philosophy actually underpins that approach to analysis. So I'm very interested in educational liberation, which is a which is kind of like the crux of critical pedagogy. I'm interested in finding in unveiling and then ameliorating the oppressive structures and institutions, especially for this, you know, for my topic in education. I think having a, a critical frame of mind is, is very important when approaching a topic, particularly like uh, education, but also it's the the basis of it. I came across forms of critical analysis when I was back in when I was back in law school and trying to work out why this law came about, why this decision was made, trying to look at it. But also uh, it gives you it requires you to look at a decision from multiple perspectives. Yes, and yes, absolutely. I think that when it comes to analysis of data, and particularly when it comes to decisions uh, with children and mm. their education, looking at all the different stakeholders and all the way down the line, because when a decision is made to say we want to make more globalized citizens, that's a grand statement. But by the time it's gotten through all these different committees and gotten down to the, the textbooks and then the principals and then the heads of department and then the individual teachers and then the individual students mm -hmm. and then the parents as well. I think yeah. there's so much going on that having uh, a kind of a revolving perspective is uh, an important way of approaching it. So it's uh, it's certainly going to be a big project for you. And I, I wish you uh, all the best uh, with your studies. Uh, the paper we've been speaking about today is Representations of Multiculturalism in Japanese Elementary EFL Textbooks, a Critical Analysis. And uh, we've been speaking uh, with Kate Efron, who is a language tutor for Cambridge University Press. So thank you very much for your time today, Kate, and I wish you all the best with your future research. Well, thank you so much, Chris. It was great to be here. Great speaking with you. Lost in Citations is an audio journal that invites you to contribute your own interviews. If there's someone whose work you cite regularly and you'd like to hear more from them, then please feel free to arrange your own interview and submit it for consideration. For more information, go to lostincitations.com where you'll find our guide for contributors. What we ask is you submit a five minute audio sample before the interview so that we can help you with any audio quality issues. Then you can go ahead and record 45 minutes to an hour and submit it at lostincitations at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, we have Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter pages. Finally, a very helpful thing you can do is if you like the work we're doing, recommend it to a friend. Thank you very much.